0: Incredible thing that happened back then, 500 years ago over in Germany. kicked off with Martin Luther. We've focused on him over the last couple of weeks to look at these key ideas that came out of this period of history called the Reformation, these great themes that drove these people and what kind of sparked them and set the world on fire in many ways. Um, But this time we're going to go back a little bit less than 500 years and we're flying British Airways, so look out. Uh, We're going to get to London uh, this time, we're going to England. It's 1554, and we're sneaking into this place, the Tower of London. Now, it's a tourist attraction now. Anyone been there? Uh, a couple of people. Yeah, we've had some, a few people go through the Tower of London. It's a tourist attraction now, but uh, back then, it was, of course, it was a prison. It was a, uh, a high-security prison. And in the tower is this young lady, 16 years old, one Lady Jane Grey. Uh, you might not have heard of her, but it's a complex, her story is a really complex one. Uh, she had been the Queen of England for nine days. She'd been the Queen for nine days. Uh, the, Reformation, uh, the Reformation that we've been learning about over in Germany and that spread through continental Europe had come to, uh, had come to England under uh, Henry VIII. You might have heard about him. He seems to have been motivated probably more by politics and personal reasons than by theology. But it was a really under his son, Edward, that the Reformation took off in England. It really took off. Uh, Edward was a convinced Protestant, and he started bringing in the stuff that we've been talking about, that we're saved by grace alone. He started bringing that theology and all the, uh, the practices that came with it into the church in England. But Edward died young, if you know the history. A bit of a, this is going somewhere if you're not a history buff, but uh, it's uh, important to have a bit of a sense of. Edward died young, um, and there was a bit of a crisis at the time. You see, the most direct heir to the throne was his half-sister Mary, who was a convinced out-and-out out, Roman Catholic. Um, and, uh, she would undo all of Edward's reforms. She would undo them all. And uh, she was also Henry's, this is getting complicated, she was Henry's daughter by the marriage that was annulled, if you know any of the history. It doesn't matter if you don't. So there was a bit of sort of complication there. And so there was a group who thought, well, we don't want Mary to be Queen now that Edward's dead. Uh, we want Jane Grey to be the Queen. She was in the kind of succession line, um, not as directly as Mary. It's messy. Uh, but she was, so she was like a cousin. She was in the family. But her reign only... So she was um, crowned as Queen of England, but her reign only lasted for nine days. Um, but uh, because Mary then sort of um, took over and anyway uh, Jane ends up in prison she's in prison for treason and while she's there uh, Queen Mary sends uh, his chief guy he's her sorry her chief uh, archbishop a guy named Feckenham, to try and talk her out of her reformed theology Jane Gray was a as I said, a convinced Protestant and the people who wanted her to be Queen were convinced that she would continue to bring this wonderful Reformation to England. Uh, She's only 16 years old, remember, and the Archbishop of Canterbury comes, uh, probably thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. Here's this 16-year-old who's been uh, given all the right answers, but she'll crumble and she'll be returned to the proper faith as he thought it. I don't think Feckenham knew what he was getting himself in for, though. Jane was brilliant. Uh, she taught herself Greek, taught herself Greek, you know, just so that she could read the New Testament in the original language it was written in. Uh, she was learning Hebrew at this time, so she, you know, she's a bit of a brilliant person. And when, she came, when it came to theology, she was actually more, more than a match for old Archbishop Feckenham. And here's, here's part of the record of their debates should come up on the screen. Fekenden was trying to kind of catch her out, trying to convince her that Reformed theology, um, this, this recovery of salvation purely by grace, just through faith, was wrong, and she needed to change her mind. Uh, so the Archbishop says, "'And how shall we love our neighbor? Jane replies, "'Well, to love our neighbour is to feed the hungry "'and clothe the naked and to give drink to the thirsty "'and to do to him as we would do to ourselves.'" So Feckenham then replies, why, then, it is necessary unto salvation to do good works also, and it is not sufficient only to believe. Wordy kind of language, but you get what Feckenham's getting at. He's saying, ah, okay, so you have to do good works in order to get saved. You have to do good things. And then Jane says this, I deny that, and I affirm, this is old language, but go with it, I affirm that faith only saveth, but it is meet, it's fitting, it's right for a Christian in token that he followeth his master Christ to do good works, yet we may not say that they profit to our salvation, for when we have done all, yet we be unprofitable servants and faith only in Christ's blood saveth us. Again, kind of old language, this record of this confrontation between 16-year-old girl and Archbishop of Canterbury and she, more than a match for him. She replies with... She, her answer really gets right to the heart of the Reformation, what, what this conflict that we've been thinking about was really all about. Uh, and it was something that Jane and the reformers around her, they were actually willing to die for. Not long after this, Jane was executed by Mary, along with a stack of other Protestant reformers. And if you know the history, it wasn't until Mary's half-sister Elizabeth took the throne and then sort of swung things back to uh, Reformation theology, although probably not as strongly as it was under Edward. Anyway, that's by the by. Uh, What is it all about? Um, This this thing that Lady Jane Grey and this dispute that happened, what she was willing to die for, what so many people were willing to die for, it gets to this key question that drove these guys 500 years ago and is still a key question for every person today. It's the question of how human beings can be saved. The technical term uh, is how we're justified. How we're, uh, just, to be justified is to kind of have this legal declaration over you that says you're right, you're in the rights when you face kind of a law court of God God declares you to be right. And this question drove the reformers, it drove Lady Jane Grey, when you stand before God, and if you're with us a few weeks ago, we kind of saw how these guys recovered this huge view of God, right? The, the God of all glory and majesty and power and holiness, this God-centred view of life, and they saw the reality of the human condition. This is... From last week, a bit of a recap. If you weren't here, we looked at this incredible passage from Ephesians 2. They saw that we're not just sick; that we don't just need a bit of a, a pick-me-up to get us going. We don't need—we don't just need a little bit of direction to help us along our way. Uh, the reality that they saw in the scriptures uh, was that we are dead in our sins, cut off from God, from life and light. We need. We don't just need good advice. We need saving. We need a new life. We will not stand before this holy judge on our own. We will not be declared right. And we will be justly condemned. We saw last week that any help in our situation needs to come from outside of us, not from within us. It needs to come from outside of us. It needs to be a pure gift of grace. And again, we kept reading this passage last week in Ephesians 2, and that's just what the gospel gives us. That's just what we're given. God has acted uh, in in, in his incredible grace to give his people what we couldn't have on our own, to raise us up with Christ and seat us in the heavenly places. We have been saved by grace and through faith. Uh, If grace is how God relates to us, this pure undeserved grace... Well, the question that kind of is the next one along that really gets to the heart of the Reformation is, if that's how God relates to us, how do we relate to him? What's our kind of part in all of this? How do we relate to him? And as they recovered the Bible, as they went back to the Scriptures, they saw uh, that the only answer, the the answer that they saw there was that the way we relate to God is by faith and faith alone alone sinful people are saved we're justified we're made right by faith alone um but it's worth isn't it kind of just uh pausing for a second to think um what is this faith what what's going on with faith what uh what is biblical faith uh, there's some kind of uh, view about faith i don't know it gets talked about a lot um Sometimes, uh, have you ever had someone say to you, gee, I just wish I had your faith? <laughs> you know, I, just, I don't have your faith. It's kind of like a spiritual side to you, some kind of having, having this spiritual element to your life and, well, you know, I don't have it, but I wish I could. And uh, that's, that's one way we think about faith. That's not, that's not what the Reformers were getting at. That's not what the Bible's on about. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's this idea of blind faith that gets out there. Uh, there's a great scene. I think I've said this before, talked about this before, but it's this great scene in, in one of the Indiana Jones movies and Indy's standing on the edge of a cliff and he just has to, uh, he, he can't see, he needs to get to the other end of this great chasm and there's no way across. He's standing at this and he just has to take a blind leap of faith, right? Um, and of course, what he, there's an optical illusion. Does anyone know this scene? There's an optical illusion, the camera pans around and there's, there is actually a bridge but he couldn't see it. It's like this blind leap of faith. It's not uh, based on anything that you can, any kind of rationality or anything like that. It's just blind faith. Um, often this is kind of ridiculed. It's actually kind of try, believing something against the evidence. Um, well, the biblical faith, the, what the reformers were talking about when they talked about faith, is something a little different to that. Uh, and these, they, they talked about faith in terms of three different things. They, they said to have faith, you've got to know the faith in the gospel. You've got to know what the gospel is. You have to kind of know the claims of the gospel. Um, but that's not enough, right? Anyone can know the claim that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, that he died on the cross. He can know. Anyone can know that Christians believe that he rose again, that he died for their sin to reconcile them to God. It's not just enough to know it. You've got to accept it as true. You've got to accept it as true. But then they said, even then, even the devil accepts that as true. (laughs) Even the devil will accept it as true. It's not just, you've got to go further, actually. That's not what biblical faith is. There's this third sort of part to it, that real faith, faith that saves, faith that makes you, declares you to be in the right with God. They went further and said that it's personal trust. It has this element of giving yourself to this truth, a personal reliance on Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour. If grace is giving us what we don't deserve, faith is holding out our hands to receive that wonderful gift, opening our mouths. Luther has this great image of opening our mouths to receive this and trusting ourselves to it, resting in it. And this faith is actually a gift from God in itself. Um, One of the other guys that we haven't talked a lot about over the last few weeks, John Calvin, he wrote this. Uh, This is what he talked about when he he talked about faith. Now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's kindness towards us, founded on my wish that he's good to me? No, no, founded on the truth of the freely given promise of Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. is all of God's grace, and it was God's Spirit that reveals this and opens up our hearts and our minds to this reality of his grace. All right, well that the reformers believing this about faith put them at odds with the Roman Catholic Church of their day. Uh, That was in stark contrast. The Roman Catholic uh, Church believed that we're saved by faith plus works Uh, and this idea that when we're justified, we're declared to be right with God, not when we become Christians, but only at the end, after a life of faith and good works. Um, we're declared righteous on the basis of our own righteousness that has kind of worked in us over time. Uh, what they called infused righteousness is kind of this righteousness that we own. Uh, it is by God's grace, but we kind of cooperate with that. And we talked about that last week. Uh, the reformers said, no, 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 that doesn't cut it. <laughs> uh, they saw what they called, uh, again, it's big, big terms, don't stress if you're not not fond of big terms, but it gets to something really important. Um, uh, they saw what they called not infused righteousness, but imputed righteousness. Basically, it's not our own goodness that we bring to God. It's goodness from outside of us. That's what they call imputed to us, reckoned to us, that, that God sees us as having, even though it doesn't come from within us. Christ's goodness he is righteousness, freely given to us. So we're not kind of waiting to the end to find out if we'll be declared to be in the right. Uh, the moment we res- believe in Christ, there's this great hymn, uh, To God Be the Glory, if you know that hymn, it has a line in it. The vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. He's not waiting to the end. That moment from Jesus they are um, made righteous, declared to be righteous. One author puts it like this. This is kind of in summary of all this stuff. I know there's a lot to take in here. But we're going to get to how this hits home for us in a sec. Uh, one author says this. God's radical grace was necessary for human beings to be right before God because human obedience could never qualify. Believers needed an imputed righteousness, a righteousness given to them instead of earned by them. Faith receives what God gives. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen one are right with God. Faith receives what God gives. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are right with God. Well, there's no place... Uh, this insistence on faith alone there's no place where that's kind of brought to the fore more than the reading we had from Galatians 2 it's all through the bible right it's all through the bible but you saw in that reading from Galatians 2 this incredible confrontation between these two giants in the church Paul and Peter Uh, and if you we can't go into detail but in our home groups hopefully you've kind of tossed this passage around there's lots in there Um, Paul saw that If if we read through it, Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, uh, with this free grace that's given through faith. He started putting barriers up between him and other people. So um, uh, when he uh, he was acting in line with this wonderful reality of the gospel, all people who trusted in Jesus were welcomed and accepted. But then he started to listen to some other people to say, we've just got to not associate with those guys over there. They might be Christians, but they're not doing all the right things that we think they should be doing. So we'll kind of not eat with them anymore. It's as simple as that, as simple as saying, I'm not going to sit at you for dinner. I'll sit over there. (laughs) Um, And Paul just really lays into him in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter feared people around him more than he feared God. He kind of caved into their expectations. And Paul knew that the heart of the gospel was at stake here. What defines God's people is not what we do, but what is done to us. What defines God's people is not the works of the law. Nothing we can do will ever make us more acceptable to God. We can never place God in our debt so that we can say, look, I've done these things, therefore you owe me. God works by grace. His free gift and his people are always marked by faith and faith alone. And did you see, if you might have picked up in that reading, this faith gives us a whole new life. Um, One of the objections you often hear to this and we sort of mentioned it last week: is that uh, this extreme view of God's grace, and it's just through faith that we're made right with Him, doesn't it just lead us to more sin? Now, doesn't it lead us to just being, thinking we can just do whatever we want because what we do doesn't matter? Now, the reformers thought, and we see it here in Galatians, that when you saved—oh, this is a line from—this is a good line to remember: we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always leads to a transformed life. Always leads to a transformed life. That's what you see in Galatians. uh, Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. See what's going on there? Through trusting in Jesus, he's so connected to Jesus that what happens to Jesus happens to him and he has a whole new life. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Okay, well, um, it's an interesting kind of thing to think through, this idea of faith alone. For some of us, this is bread and butter things that we've, um, thought through and received and believed in for a long time. Others, it may be more unfamiliar. Others might just think it's a bit academic, right? Like, what's going on? <laughs> These guys made all this fuss over just saying that they were saved by faith alone rather than by faith plus works. Can't we all just get along? Um, you can wonder what people get so worked up about. My friends, I just want to suggest and... Kind of focus in it as we finish things up here uh, by suggesting that justification by faith alone isn't just for people who like big words. Okay. It does actually strike at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Not only what it means to start as a Christian, but what it means to live as a Christian day by day, every minute, every hour, to live in the gospel. Um, We have a constant temptation of slipping back into a kind of works mentality where my identity, my security, my feeling of being right is tied to what I do. Uh, It depends on me. So we can often feel like this, a bit of a a, a graph to help us out. Uh, We can often feel like this in our relationship to God. Uh, I wake up and it's right down there. But then there's coffee, and I manage to read my Bible while I have a cup of coffee, and everything feels great, right? And I'm feeling, now that's up in about almost, you know, it's around 80% I'm getting there. But then my old sin creeps back in. I get angry or whatever it else it might be, and suddenly I feel, oh, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not going too well today. Uh, but then I have a really productive day, right? I've got my list of jobs. All gets done. God must be really happy with me. I'm right up 95%, right? Uh, but then, and maybe this happens to you, then this comment comes in from out of the blue from someone. Maybe some hurtful comment. Uh, someone from your family says something really cutting and you just plummet, right? You plummet, Uh but then, then you kind of pick yourself up after that and you go out and you kind of do a good deed. You do something that you know, helps someone else and think, okay, I'm back on track. Then the day is drawing to a close and then you think about tomorrow and start to sort of waver a bit more. But then um, you manage to have a really great sort of prayer time with your family maybe at the end of the day or with your spouse or whatever it is uh, by yourself and you, you know, you're kind of feeling back on track. Okay. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It can, you can sort of change that with, any, with a whole manner of different things. What that's getting at is we often tie our feeling of how right we are with our experience here and now. This is what justification by faith does it declares to you. Oh, if you go back one, see the line at the top? Justification by faith declares to you, it stamps over every minute of your day that you are accepted. You are right with God and that it is no way dependent on you and your goodness, but entirely on Jesus and his goodness, his righteousness. It's 100% all the way, not because of you, but because of Christ. And do you see what that means, friends? It means you're not more accepted after having your coffee and Bible in the morning You're not less accepted when you fail or when you just feel terrible because of what has happened to you. It means that you've got no room for pride when you feel like you're up. It also means that you have no room for despair when you feel like you're at the bottom. Living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you means living united to him so that what's true of him is now true of you. Now here's how one author, this is a bit of a lengthy kind of quote, but I think it just captures this so well. Uh, this one author puts it like this. Uh, it kind of lays into Christians a little bit, so, but maybe we can hear that. Uh, this author says only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness, or and of the extent and guilt of their sin, that they consciously see little need for justification. Although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. That's a really interesting kind of thing to say, isn't it? Many of us uh, just have not had the, captured that sense of God's holiness or a sense of the reality of our guilt and sin that we saw last week. So to talk about being justified by faith doesn't fire your heart. <laughs> uh, it's sort of just a, another thing <laughs> that you just accept and move on with. <laughs> uh, Many others, on the other hand, have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their, justi- their sanctification for justification. So that's a really important little sentence. Uh, they, many of us sort of agree this in theory, but when it comes to the crunch, we rely on... That word sanctification means kind of how we're, how we're being transformed as Christians when it comes to the crunch, we rely on that for our sense of whether we're right with God or not. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, from their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. A bit wordy, but you get the idea, right? You, you can say, oh, I haven't been that bad recently. <laughs> Things must be going well. But this author finishes up like this. Few Christians, and God willing, uh, those few Christians are among us. (laughs) Few Christians know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy external righteousness of Christ as the only ground of acceptance... Relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing transformation, sanctification, as faith is active in love and gratitude. See what they're saying? Uh, this is for all of us. For all of us, as we live in line with this wonderful gospel of salvation, justification by grace alone, receiving God's gift. Through, through faith uh, but this wonderful reality friends uh, that we're justified by faith alone uh, it is for all of us but it does have something particular it has a particular thing to say uh, to those of us who aren't christians and we kind of we saw this last week right being a christian is not about you working your way up to god it's about him coming down to you in grace Faith is simply receiving that faith, that grace, Uh, by God's grace, by his working you, by his spirit to receive it. It's more than knowing those three different types of faith. It's more than just knowing stuff about Jesus. Uh, It's more than just agreeing that Jesus died and rose again. Yep, okay, tick the box, let's move on. It's more than that. It's seeing that Jesus died and rose again, not just in abstract but that he died and rose again for you. For you. For not just sins. Yeah, okay, Jesus died and rose again for sins. But for your sins. For your sin. To make you right with God. Faith is not just agreeing that that's true in the abstract, but you yourself holding out your empty hands, ready to receive this gift, this declaration that you are his child because of Jesus. If you receive that, if God is stirring your heart and giving you the gift of faith, the moment you receive it, you have stamped over your life, righteous, right with God. We've got one more week. Steve's going to help us next week think through Um, how all of this is achieved through Christ alone. Only through Christ alone. Uh, But I just want to finish with a great story from Luther. Uh, He achieved so much and we've sort of thought about him. He wasn't a perfect guy. He had lots of foibles. um, But God used him powerfully to recapture the heart of the gospel. Not just foibles actually, lots of sins too, I should say. Uh, But I'm going to finish with a story uh, about Luther on his deathbed. Uh, he's, he kind of had achieved much through his life. And on his deathbed, uh, the last thing he wrote, really curious kind of thing, but could only be written by someone who was gripped by this reality of justification by faith alone. The last thing he wrote, he scribbled as he was dying, was, we are all beggars. <laughs> this is true. What a curious thing, to, your last words, the, the thing that you want to leave. We are all Beggars. This is true. That one phrase captures faith alone so well. We're all beggars. None of us have anything to offer in ourselves. We're not, we don't come with our hands full of ourselves. We're all beggars. That would be pretty scary to admit if it wasn't for God's grace, but Luther could write it happily, and we can hear it happily. We can be joyful beggars because the one we hold our hands out to is the God of all grace, who in Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. So we pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to soak ourselves in these great truths of the Reformation, uh, that we live life for your glory and your glory alone, and that you have revealed to yourself yourself to us once and for all with full authority in, the, in your word, the Bible. And that what we find as we read your scriptures is that you are a God who saves by grace alone and that all that we have going for us is faith alone. Thank you that through faith we are connected to Christ. Uh, thank you for Jesus and all that he means to us and all that he has achieved for us. Lord, we pray for us, we pray that we might learn more and more to uh, relax in that quality of trust that will produce increasing transformation as as we do that. We thank you for the incredible freedom that that gives us and we pray that it might transform us into those who live more and more for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.